0: Oh, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thanks for today. We truly love you. It is a privilege and a joy just to be in this place with your people and to sing to you. Sing things that are true, not just empty words um, that have a superficial meaning, but to sing things that are deeply, eternally true. It is a total delight, and we thank you that we get to do it together. Um, Please bless our time together this morning. Make us aware of our deep need for you while simultaneously satisfying that need and that hunger that only you can fill. We give this time to you in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's truly good to be with you, church. Uh, Most of you know myself and Eli got back from Turkey. Thursday evening, about eight o'clock or so, flew into Akron Canton Airport. It was an awesome two weeks uh, visiting um, many of the most of the sites and some other places as well of the the seven churches in the Book of Revelation. Um, this was much of the place, many of the places and in, in region that uh, the Apostle Paul would have traveled uh, during his missionary journeys that you read about in the Book of Acts. And it was it was an awesome time. It was also just a good time to seek the Lord, we, every morning we would walk about six to seven miles on a prayer walk, and it was just, it was just good to get out and just to focus on him, and it was, uh, I just had a really, a really good time, but I was also, while it was a good time, you know, more than one thing can be true, I also felt, um, almost right from the beginning, like a little kid that got dropped off at summer camp, and I was definitely homesick, and, uh, Missing my family a lot. I would also like to say, I never do this because I don't, you know, it's just kind of a personal thing. Um, and also, she absolutely hates to be the center of attention. But I have, like, the most awesome wife in the world. I really do, yeah. Um, I just have an awesome wife. And uh, and just really thankful uh, for her and, and the rest of the boys in my family. Um, but it's good to be back. Uh, Romans chapter 11 Verses 11 through 24 is where we will be at today. Let me read it, and then I will will jump in. Romans 11, starting in verse 11, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Provided you continue in that kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? Will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, please help. Please help. Fill us with your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to show you a, uh, a picture here um, that I took while I was over there in Turkey. Josh, can I get that, get that up there? There we go. Um this was <clears throat> from up top on a high mountain. One of the things I was not ready for while we were in Turkey were the beautiful landscapes. I was just picturing kind of deserty terrain and there was some of that, but it just went there was like mountain range and then valley and then up to other mountain range and so you were constantly like in a valley looking around at all these mountains or you were up on a mountain looking down into the valley and the the vistas were just Absolutely beautiful. This is from um, the, atop the city of what used to be the ancient city of Pergamum. Um, up on this mountain, there were several different altars to false gods. This is where the altar to Zeus was, probably a re- it's, and it's probably a reference to what Jesus was addressing in the book of Revelation. When he addresses the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. More than likely, um, referencing uh, the altar to Zeus here. But this was atop this mountain where all these different altars were, and I don't know if you can tell from the picture or not, but this is, I'm a very, uh, well, I'm just a terrible photographer, like I can just never get it right, but one of the things I used a lot over there was the little panoramic feature on the iPhone, anybody use the pano feature, you know what I mean? And so you kind of hold the thing, and then you know, you kind of go with the line, do you guys know what I'm talking about, the pano, and you, then you turn, and it's usually telling me to slow down or to go faster, and I can't stay on the line, and I'm trying to do that. So I didn't do that well, either. But this is a panoramic, a panoramic picture from atop, this mountain down over uh, what used to be the ancient city of Pergamum, and I, I forget what the modern day, what the modern-day city is called. Um, but a couple things about that picture and many panoramic pictures that I took while I was over there, is, is at the point of using a panoramic lens isn't to highlight a few very fine, minute details. You would use a different type of lens for that. But the point is to capture the grandeur of a very broad landscape. In fact, even just standing up and with that big view, just a regular photo would capture some of of it, but it couldn't capture all of it. And so you gotta go to the panoramic lens to try to capture everything, the grandeur of everything um, that lies in front of you, and I share that because in this section of Romans chapter eleven, I would argue that all the way going back into chapter eight and into nine Paul has taken us up on a very high mountain and it was a big broad there's a big broad grand picture to begin with, but here in chapter eleven it's like he moves to the panoramic lens and and he tries to capture in one snapshot like all of redemptive history, which is really, really big and difficult to do. And the reason why I think it's so important that we understand that essentially that's what this passage is, as well as some of the passage we'll look at next week, is because if you don't understand that, you, you might get caught up in not being able to quite figure out some of the details. So for example, I don't know, you see that little wall at the bottom of the picture here and how it looks like it's curved? Okay? That wall wasn't curved. That was a straight wall. Okay? But because of the panoramic feature, it made it look curved. But again, my point in taking the picture wasn't to capture the straightness of that wall. My point in taking that picture was to give you a big overview of this amazing grand view uh, that lied before me from, uh, fr- from the mountain above. And in the same way, th- this, this passage in the book of Romans it's this grand overview of all of redemptive history where we get to see what God has been doing, not just through peoples and nations and in and out a few times, but really throughout all the scope of human history, throughout all the scope of redemptive history, Paul is giving us a picture of what, of what God has been up to. But if we don't understand that, we might get caught up in the details of like, well, why is that wall curved? Why is that like that? That's not the point. And there, there are a lot of interpretive challenges in this passage. In fact, this passage in Romans 11, in many ways, is a, um, well, I should say this way, Romans 9 was a cakewalk compared to many of the things that lie in this passage. There are things that are very difficult to understand. But what I want to argue this morning is that while there are certain things in this passage that are somewhat debatable, there are also certain things that are absolutely undeniable, Absolutely undeniable. And it's those things that I, that I want to focus on. And again, those things are some really big things from this grand panoramic view uh, that Paul gives us. And so hopefully that helps set it up a little bit to where we can get into this passage and understand what Paul is really after. I'm not gonna like, try to shy away from some of the difficulties in interpreting this passage as well as some of the things we'll look at next week in the section to follow. However, um, I don't want us to miss the grandeur of what lies before us um, because we're caught up on some of the details. And so here's how we'll kind of work through it this morning. The things that are not debatable but that are undeniable, we'll work through them like this. We're gonna look at God's work, our work, and God's perspective and our perspective. God's work and our work and then God's perspective and our perspective and I will unpack those as we go through it. First of all, God's work. Here's what God's work is. Here's one thing that is undeniably true in the midst of this passage, and that is that throughout the course of redemptive history, God has always been at work to save a people that oftentimes were resistant to that salvation. People are resisting his salvation, but God stays faithful to go to work to save those people by his mercy and by his grace. He says here in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall. Now, if I had to paraphrase that question, what Paul is saying is, is God completely, or what Paul's asking is, is God completely, finally, definitively, irrevocably done with the Jewish nation? And his answer, as we've seen many times throughout this book, is a resounding no, or as he says here, by no means. Now, again, the reason Paul asked that question is because Uh, and we've looked at this in the context over the last several weeks, is that for the most part on a large scale, the the Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. But as uh, I believe Mark looked at last week, um, the first couple verses of this chapter, even in chapter 11, um, he talks about how God has always had a remnant. Paul himself was a part of that remnant. Um, but here what he's doing in chapter 11 is he's, he's being emphatic again and what making something clear is that one of the things we can know for sure is that God has always been at work to save people, whether Jew or Gentile, who are resistant to him. He stays faithful and he continues to work to draw them to himself. And now notice the, the means here. So again, you, you can't understand this if you're looking just at one time and space in history. You have to look across the course of redemptive history and you have to look at nations and peoples as a whole across those times. He says there at the end of verse eleven. Rather through their trespass, so th- and that what he, that word trespass there is referring to the nation of Israel's for the most part large scale rejection of the Messiah. He says rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, but then he adds this, so as to, or in other words, so that this will happen, there's a purpose in it, so as to make Israel jealous, okay? So what Paul is saying here, and he's, again, he's going to explain this more as we work through, through, the, through the passage, but here's what he's saying. is He's saying that salvation has come to the Gentiles, a people who once were not God's people, have now become his people, as he said at the end of chapter nine. So you have a people, the Gentiles, who have come to salvation in the Messiah, but that has happened in part through the rejection of the Jewish people who were God's chosen people. They rejected the Messiah, and through that rejection, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. But in that salvation to the Gentiles, God is now working to make Israel jealous so that some of the Jews will come back to salvation and become his people once again. Does that make sense? So it's a lot. Let me say it again. Israel is God's people. They reject the Messiah. You can see this all throughout the book of Acts. Um, Very very quickly, end of Acts chapter 7. uh, There's a great persecution that arises against the church. It's primarily a Jewish church at that point. Um, But there's a great persecution that comes from the the Jewish people from the Jewish people, the Pharisees and other religious leaders that had also crucified Jesus, you know, worked to persecute the early church, and a great persecution breaks out, and so everybody flees, and they go out to Samaria, and to these other places that Jesus said that they were going to go. In Acts chapter 13, Paul says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 18, the same thing happens. He, um, it says that when Paul and Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, uh, uh, Paul begins to, to, to take more time preaching because those guys had arrived to support him. It says when they opposed and reviled him, that meaning the Jews, it says he shook off his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent from, you, from the blood of you all, and I will go now to the Gentiles.'" The book of Acts actually ends with Paul rebuking many of the Jewish people for rejecting the Messiah and telling them that he's going to go to the Gentiles. So this happens over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. But again, here's the point. Israel, God's chosen people, they in large part reject the Messiah. It then comes to the Gentiles, but God is now saving the Gentiles, but he is not done with his people. He's now going to work through the salvation of the Gentiles to make Israel jealous and through that jealousy to lead them to salvation. Are you with me? This is what God has been doing throughout the course of time. And can I just say that none of us would think of this plan. None of us would think up this as the storyline. But you can see where Paul is going and where we're going to get next week at the end of chapter 11, where he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift a gift to him that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. So do you see the scope or context in which Paul is speaking? How he's gone way up high on a theological mountain and he's trying to take in the whole thing, man. He's trying to take in the whole thing. But the thing that we should not miss is that God is the active agent. He is the first cause of all things, working to bring salvation to his people, even though their hearts are hard and they reject it. And just think for a minute about the, the story of redemption, folks. Think about the storyline of the Bible. Think about the big stories that you learned, uh, or many of you may, may have learned in Sunday school growing up. The right away in the garden, you've got the fall. And God provides a way for Adam and Eve, Eve to be clothed in their nakedness and in their shame. By killing an animal and giving them garments. By chapter 6, the, the thoughts and intentions of every person's heart are only ever evil continually. Except for Noah who walked with God and God creates an ark. And, and anyone's welcome to come in, but none do. A few chapters later, you've got the Tower of Babel, and even after the flood, the earth is repopulated. But now they're building this big tower, and they're trying, they're going to make a name for themselves, and they say, We're going to make our name great. And God says, No, you're not. And He disperses them, but then He goes to work in Genesis chapter 12, just just through one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarah, and they're barren, they can't have kids, and God goes perfect. That's what I need. I need. Somebody that it just there's no way this could ever happen, apart from my supernatural power, and that's how it works in our in our lives. And God and God begins to work and begins to draw him to Himself. And all throughout history, God lavishes His amazing grace upon people who are resistant to it. Now, our work goes right along with this, and our work is informed by God's work. And again, what is God's work? Throughout history, he's working to save a people that are oftentimes resistant to that salvation. What is our work, informed by God's work? Our work is to share the message of salvation to a people who often resist it. That's our work as his people, to share this message of grace. And now I want us to sit for a second in this idea of jealousy, This idea of jealousy that Paul mentions two times in the text. I've already mentioned it once at the end of verse 11. He says the salvation has come to the Gentiles. And again, God loves the Gentiles. He sees us as individuals. But again, Paul is very much speaking corporately here. That's the context. And he wants to save the Gentiles because he loves them. But it's also to make Israel jealous. And then look again at verse 13. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So Paul is addressing the Gentiles at the the church in Rome directly. And he says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So do you see the word jealous again? So this jealousy that... Paul is referring to in regards to this jealousy that's going to be stirred up. He believes in the Jewish people because of the salvation that they see in the Gentiles. This is not the type of jealousy of like you know little kids on the playground saying "Nana Nana Boo Boo." Okay, this is a type of jealousy that that leads to salvation. It is a type of jealousy that um, God uses to stir up. Something in the hearts of the Jewish people that they might repent and turn to their Messiah and to, and to believe in them. Um, now, this might be kind of hard, hard for us to get, but let me give you a, a couple of illustrations in regards to kind of the, this idea of the jealousy that it has in mind. And if you remember here, back in, in Romans chapter nine, um, Paul <coughs> speaking, excuse me, of the Jewish people all the way back in chapter nine. Verses 4 and 5, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Remember when we talked about that several weeks ago? And the word that I used, or the phrase that I used, is that it is fitting it is fitting for the Jewish people to believe in their Messiah because all these promises and this, this blessing through Abraham that was to come to the whole world, which in, uh, obviously would be all the Gentiles, it came through them. And so, yeah, it's for the Gentiles, but it's especially fitting that it should, that it should come to them and that they should receive their Messiah because all these, these natural blessings had been given to them in God's working in redemptive history. And it's kind of like if you grow up in Holmes County and don't like cheese, because we got some awesome cheese, amen? People come from all over to eat our cheese. Gugesberg Baby Swiss is my favorite, just throwing that out there. Heine's is also acceptable. Um, but you've got a lot of cheese going on. I mean, we've got the little Switzerland just down the road. God bless the little Switzerland. People come from all over to get it, but it's especially fitting. That growing up here, that we might embrace the cheese. <laughs> and what everybody else drives way out of their way for, we drive past every day. And so it's it's fitting for us to, to accept that. This is our inheritance. I'll give you another illustration. My my grandma, several years before she passed away, um, she she liked to eat at Boyden Worthman. All right, another. Another Holmes County thing. In fact, it's kind of it's it's kind of cute. She met my grandpa at Boyd & Worthman back in like the 40s, I believe. She was a waitress there, and my grandpa came in, and the rest is history. As I say, but she to to her last day, she liked she liked Boyd & Worthman. Well, there is oftentimes a line out the front door door at Boyd & Worthman. Yeah, um, and I feel like maybe I've talked about this before, but have any of you ever? Snuck in the back way at Boyd Northman. Let's be honest, this church, let's confess here, okay? There's a little basement door. I'm not I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying locals tend to do it because they don't want to wait in line. Well, my grandma, she wasn't gonna wait in no line. But she she would she wouldn't even go in the back way. She would just walk right up the front, right in front of everybody. And she would tell me about it. Like I saw visit her sometimes. She, she'd be like, I went to Boyden-Worthman today. And uh, <laughs> she's like, but I didn't wait in that line. I just walked right in past him and I went. So then everybody in Boyden-Worthman knew, knew my grandma and stuff. And, but the point is, again, I'm not, this isn't a moral lesson on that it's okay to jump the queue, okay? But the point is, the point is, is like that was her inheritance. That was, that was hers, man. You can come from out of town and eat here, and yeah, you'll get to get in, and, and, it, and it's yours. But like, for her, she was like, this is, this is mine. She felt a sense of ownership to it, and she wanted to embrace it. And in that same way, it's Paul saying here that through the salvation that's come to the Gentiles, which is all of us, There's going to be something that I believe has been happening throughout history, will continue to happen, and one day I think, although I I think this is part of the thing, one of the things that's somewhat debatable, I also think it's going to happen large scale in the nation someday, is that God is not going to stop saving people, even people who are resistant to that salvation. And he is always at work in all of his sovereignty, but his sovereignty uses very specific means, one of them being the preaching of the gospel and the stirring up to jealousy of the Jewish people to where they are going to come in and they're going to turn to their Messiah. And church, it is our responsibility to share this gospel and to share it in such a way that it stirs people up to jealousy, not just the Jews, but I think there's a broader application here to a watching world Again, when Paul says that he, he magnifies his ministry and somehow in magnifying that ministry, it's to stir Israel up to jealousy. Here's the million dollar question, just thinking of it even more broadly, not just about stirring the Jews up to jealousy, but to anyone who doesn't know Jesus in stirring them up to jealousy and wanting what we would have. Is there anything in us that would make somebody jealous? Or are we offering the same trinkets the same dead religion, the same superstition that all the other religious systems offer? Or are we preaching the resurrected Christ, risen from the dead, totally unique from every other religion? There have been many religions throughout history where men have claimed to be God, but here's the, here's the, here's the golden nugget. They all died, and they stayed dead, but not our Messiah not Jesus Christ. And any secular historian worth his salt will at least admit this, will say Jesus was a real historical person, he really lived, he really died, many will even acknowledge that he was also crucified, and then they'll say this, and then on the third day, something happened. Something happened, we know what that is. And this is the message that we are to preach and that we are to bring to the world, but not not only in our preaching of this gospel, But in the way that we live our our, our lives, what what qualities are there in us that would make people jealous? And let me sit for a second just in in another verse here that I think helps um, maybe bring some clarification to maybe what Paul has in mind. In verse 13, when he says the little phrase there, I magnify my ministry, that, that word magnify, it's just the idea of highlighting something. Okay, so like in my notes today, I've got a bunch of things written down, but I've also got a bunch of things highlighted. They're things I really want to stand out. They're, they're things that I want to make sure that I, that I don't miss. But he says, I magnify or I, I highlight my ministry. But what, what part of his ministry? Well, listen, listen to this, just a, one verse here. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Um, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. Uh, Ephesus was a place where he had spent much time and ministered every day for two years, lecturing every day. If you can imagine how awesome that would have been to have the Apostle Paul in your city, um, lecturing through the scriptures every day. But now he's he's getting ready to leave Ephesus, and he calls all the elders together, men that he would have spent a lot of time with and with whom he would have been very close. And he tells them that he's never going to see them again because he's going to Jerusalem. And he knows that he's gonna be arrested and things are gonna be difficult for him. But he says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And listen, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, remember, he says in verse 13, I magnify my ministry, Okay, so he says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What was that ministry? Here's what he says. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he wanted to magnify. He wanted to magnify, he wanted to highlight his ministry, but what specifically? This message of God's grace that no matter how hard-hearted you have been, no matter what you've done, no matter how much shame you may have even brought in here this morning and may be carrying right now as you sit there and listen to this. My dear friend, there is a grace in Christ Jesus that can take it all away. No matter the weight of your shame, of your sin of the darkness and the conviction that you feel just come to Jesus by by simple faith just receive him it's why he came he came not just for the hard hearted Jewish people he came for the hard hearted Gentile people which is all of us He came for people that wanted nothing to do with him because we all, Romans chapter one, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, the truth that we see in creation, that the heavens declare his wonder and his glory. We suppress that truth. And that's sin. And then we act in light of it. And that too is more sin. But Jesus came to take it all. And that's grace. And I, I know that we know this, Mercy Hill. I know that we know this, but like, I'm just saying it again. And you're going to hear me say it a ton until the Lord takes me out of here or takes me home or whatever. That is, we've got to make central in all of our lives this message of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. We're not teaching a dead, as one person said, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Where we just throw in a God, we throw in some rules, and we throw in some good morals, and we try to make people feel good. That's not what we're doing. It's about the grace of God. And it should stir a watching world up to jealousy and to want what we have. Thirdly, the third thing that's abundantly clear in this passage is not just God's work and our work in light of God's work, but also God's perspective, and it is a unique perspective. Um, I I think we know this, but I think we miss it oftentimes, especially in our individualistic, isolated, me-centered American Western world in which we live. And God's perspective, uh, when I say God's perspective, it is this, is that while God absolutely sees each one of us that he has saved as individuals and as his children, he also sees us as one people who are collectively the bride of his son. Or, to use the language of this passage that Paul was going to spend quite a bit of time on, and again, I'd say this is kind of the same way collectively, in the same way as I just mentioned the bride of his son. The language of this passage, he says, those who he has saved throughout history into one olive tree. Into one olive tree. That was meant to bear fruit for His glory. Now let's spend some time on this. This is quite a famous uh, metaphor that Paul that Paul uses, and again, this is where um, sometimes much of the confusion and difficulty in interpreting this passage lies. But I'll try to unpack it as best I can here. Verse sixteen. He says if the dough offered as first fruits is holy so is the whole lump. Now, so Paul actually uses two metaphors here. One is this of the first fruits and the and the dough, and then he s- uses that of the olive tree. They're they're fairly synonymous illustrations. He by far spends the most time on the olive tree illustri- illustration, but let me not brush past this here, the offering of the dough. So he says if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now, here's here's kind of the gist of this is that when there was a harvest in Israel, the first thing that the Israelites were to do with the first part of that harvest was to take the first of the first, so to speak, and to offer it to the Lord. And when you offered it to the Lord, it made the rest of it holy. In other words, it was unlawful to eat of the harvest until you had offered the first of it to the Lord. And the reason for that is is because God was reminding them in their sacrifices, in their worship, in their offering. He's like, don't forget where this comes from. It all comes from me you haven't done this yeah you sowed the seed yeah you tilled the ground yeah you tended it and watered it but it all comes from me and so it was a recognition that God was the one that gives the harvest but once you offered it then the rest of it then the rest of it was was made holy and and one thing I want to point out here is that the main idea being here with first fruits is that there was more yet to come okay You offered it to the Lord because there was more yet to come. You can now partake of what he had, but there was also more yet to come. And that, too, was going to be from the Lord. Now, he rolls from there. He just mentioned that briefly right into the olive tree illustration, and he sits on this for quite a while. Second part of verse 16. He says, And if the root is holy so are the branches. Now, the question's going to become, who's the root, who's the branches, who's the wild olive shoot, all this stuff. Let's, Let's read on and I'll explain it. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, now, key word there is some, not all, but some of the branches were broken off, and you, speaking to the Gentiles in the context, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, then remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, providential, providentially, um, I, was, uh, I, w- I didn't know this was going to be happening at all when we, when we went to Turkey, but we literally spent hours upon hours walking through olive tree groves. While we were while we were over there, and I knew that this passage was coming up, and I was trying to understand this. So, can I get those pictures up there? Get the first one up there, Josh. Um, this is the picture I took uh, walking through an olive tree grove. There they are. That's a little olive tree. All right. Um, there were just miles and miles and acres and acres of them. Go to the next one, Josh. This is well. Go go back quick. Go back quick, Josh. Sorry. So these are these are olive groves where people are intentionally tending them and planting them and harvesting them, taking care of them, making sure they're watered, all that stuff. Okay, go to the next one. This was a wild olive tree. And as you can see, at the bottom, there are all these shoots coming out of it, right? But this was one that was just kind of growing in the wild. It wasn't, it wasn't tended. But just to help give you a little bit of an idea of what Paul has in mind here, is you have these tended olive trees, okay, the first picture, and then you've got this wild olive tree with wild olive shoots, shooting out of the bottom of it, okay? Now, I didn't get a good picture of this, but I actually went in there and I was like moving the little shoots away and like trying to take a picture of it, but I couldn't get a good one. And some of those little shoots actually do. They get grafted into the trunk and they begin to grow. But go to the next picture here and let me show you. There you go. This is a picture. I didn't take this one. I found it on the internet. Praise God for Google. Um, But this is a picture of a stump, and you can see that there, that a wild olive shoot had fully been grafted into, and you can see how that shoot then grew in that stump and became alive and able, and able to bear fruit. Okay, so you with me? Does that make sense? What Paul is saying here in this passage is that we as Gentiles were like those wild olive shoots at the bottom of that second picture that I, I showed. We were alive, yet we were not fruit bearing. There was nothing in us that gave that gave, glory, that gave glory to God, and there never would be. But in his grace and in his, in his mercy, we were grafted into the olive tree. But, again, the context of this passage is, we were grafted in because some, verse 17, because some branches were broken off. Why were they broken off? because of their hard-hearted unbelief. And in their unbelief, Gentiles were grafted in. Again, think the book of Acts, what I read earlier. Paul shares with the Jews. They reject it. He says, okay, I'm going to the Gentiles. Happens several times. They're trying to share in Jerusalem the gospel. Stephen sh- stands up and testifies to it. They stone him. They reject it. Persecution happens. They spread, and they share the gospel to the Gentiles, is that, and the point here is this, is that God mercifully has grafted anyone here this morning that is not Jewish, and I don't know that any of you are, but if you're not Jewish, you have mercifully been grafted into the root of the olive tree. Now, what is the root of the olive tree? This is where a lot of the debate happens. One of two things for sure Most people think that the root of the olive tree are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is important because the the root of the olive tree in which we have been grafted into in salvation is not just the the unbelieving nation of Israel. They are the branches that were broken off. But the root is people who were national-born Jews, but who also were believing in the Messiah. Namely, the root being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they were the, they were the, they were the first ones. Or some people also believe that uh, the root would be the first century Jewish church. Okay? So these would be Jew, national-born Jewish people who were believers in Jesus. So remember, the early church at, at the beginning, um, at Pentecost, was primarily a Jewish church. The apostles were all Jewish. But it wasn't just that they were Jewish, it was that they also believed in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I know this is kind of technical. But this is what Paul wants us to get here. Okay? And again, why is he speaking like this? Because he's taking us up high, and this is part of the panoramic of the history of redemption from God's perspective That he absolutely sees you as an individual and he knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you speak them, Psalm 139. But he also sees us as one olive tree. And this is the church, Jew and Gentile, who have believed in the Messiah. Now, there's some of you are gonna be familiar with this. Some of you aren't. I'll just throw it out there. Um, There's many times when you begin to talk about the church in Israel, there's a lot of heated debate about it. And one of the terms that gets thrown around a lot is the, the term replacement theology. And that term, it's, it's a pejorative. It's usually used in a derogatory sense by those who still believe that we, like, should radically support the nation of Israel today. And it gets into a bunch of politics and different things like that. Um, but uh, the, the point being is that the word itself, replacement theology, isn't very accurate what I would propose is that the biblical word that should probably be used is inclusion theology. Is that the true people of God aren't just just the Jewish people. Remember back in chapter nine, verse six? Not all who are Israel are Israel. Not all who are Israel are Israel. Who's true Israel? Those who have believed in the Messiah. And so it's not that the Gentile people who have believed have replaced Israel. No, 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 we've been grafted in to one tree, the believing Jewish people who are the root, and us as a wild olive shoot who have been grafted in. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Now, you're like, well, why does that matter? I mean, that's cool and OK. You show me some pictures in the olive tree. I mean, I guess I get it well. Again, there are certain things in this passage that are debatable, but there are others that are undeniable. And here's another one of the undeniable things. Not only what God sees from his perspective, but also what we are to do in light of it, our perspective. Here's the takeaway in light of this theology that I've just unpacked. Do not be arrogant, but be humble. Let me show you this. This is Paul's, look at verse 18. I read it a couple times already. But I didn't highlight it. End of verse 17, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, <clears throat> verse 18, <clears throat> what's undeniable? He says this, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Who are the branches? The unbelieving Jews. So it's not just, just don't be arrogant or to say that the positive way, be humble, show humility, but show humility even towards those who rejected? who rejected the Messiah, and who might reject you. And again, in terms of broader application, I want to be very clear that he's obviously talking about the Jewish people here, but there's also a broader application for anyone who does not know Christ. Is brother, or sister, we should be adamant, we should be bold, we should be courageous in sharing the message of the resurrection and the grace that is offered in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But we should not do that with arrogance. We should not do it with pride. We should do it with the utmost humility. And I just, I just wonder about Paul's life. Because Paul, at one time, it would have seemed, was one of these broken off branches. He was a Jew who rejected the Messiah. And in the story of Stephen, and of Stephen's testimony, and testifying to the grace of God, and... Um, and to the witness of the resurrection. You guys know the story at the end of chapter of Acts chapter 7. They're stoning Stephen. And it says, The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was the man who had gone to become the Apostle Paul. They laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's the type of humility I'm talking about. He didn't shrink back. He didn't, and please hear me. I mean, I, we could sit on this forever. This is so, 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 so important especially in terms of a broader application for the world in which we live where everybody says, you got to tolerate my view and you have to be tolerant of me and if, if you disagree with me, then you hate me. Listen, I am not talking about shrinking back from sharing the undiluted gospel of the grace of God and of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You guys know that. However, I want us to share it not with hatred of those who are against us, but also not affirming those who are against us. The world wants to make it this, this false dichotomy that if you disagree with me, well then that means you hate me and you're intolerant and you're just condemning me and you're shaming me. That's not it at all. We're not going to affirm sin. We're not going to affirm what the Bible clearly calls wickedness. But we're also not going to hate them. We're going to testify to the grace of God and if need be, even be willing to lay down our lives. That's what he's called us to do. Not only should this theology of the olive tree and God's perspective throughout all of redemptive history cause a humility towards the lost, but it should cause a reverent fear towards God. He goes on here, and again, undeniable, can't deny this, in the midst of all the questions about who's the branches, what's the root, yada, yada, yada. He says, verse 20, so do not become proud, but fear. Fear who? Fear God. Brothers and sisters, the reason that we so unashamedly and consistently preach about the sinfulness of humanity here at Mercy Hill is not so that you carry a certain measure of shame or condemnation regarding your sin, but so that you will live with reverent fear at the thankfulness of your salvation. If you understand grace... We should rejoice, we should be happy, we should be excited, we should live with hope and know that there's victory in store for us. But we should also, if we understand grace, folks, we should be like this. In the posture of our heart. Because it wasn't because of us. It was all because of God's grace. And see, this is what Paul's pressing at in this grand view of redemptive history. Verse 22, he says, note then, in other words, don't miss the point. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Can I just stop for a second and ask, do you worship a God who can show both those traits? Do you worship the God of the Bible who displays both kindness and And severity. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who are fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise, you too will be cut off. Just a quick word here. Paul is speaking corporately in this passage. That verse does not mean that you can lose your salvation. He is what he's saying here is he is speaking to the Gentiles, and he's saying, Gentiles, don't be arrogant. Don't make the argument like he kind of anticipates them making uh, um, back in verse, uh, where is it, Uh, 20, where he says, you know, some were broken off, or I'm sorry, verse verse 18, 19 in there, some were broken off so that I could be grafted in. He's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) He's saying, if you harden your heart and think it's all about you and become arrogant as a people, God can harden you too. You'll become broken off. And then he says, verse 23, and even if they do not continue in their unbelief, verse 23, they, they, the Jewish people, will be grafted back in. And here's the phrase I want you to get. For God has the power to graft them in again. Amen? God has the power to graft them back in. Remember all the way back in chapter one, verse 16, the beginning of this year, when we hit that, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. All who will believe, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. And the question this morning is Mercy Hill, are you amazed at your salvation? Do you do you behold both the kindness and the severity of God? The kindness, what you've been saved to, but the severity of what you've been saved from. We were, and I'm. I, this, is, this is basic. I, I, it's more of a confession that, I don't know, it just kind of revealed where my heart has gotten maybe over the last couple years, but it hit me again in a fresh new way as we're sitting in Izmir, Turkey, for the first couple days, what used to be ancient Smyrna. It's, just a, it's, it's only like the fifth largest city in Turkey. It's three million people. Istanbul, which was, we didn't go there, it was a little bit north of them, is 15 million people. I mean, just massive cities. But I'm sitting there in the midst of this city, praising God that we didn't get into a wreck, because it was, man, it was crazy driving. Anyway, three million people, just in this one little city that most people couldn't find on a map. According to the Joshua Project, which keeps track of unlost people groups throughout the world. And the, the nation of Turkey as a whole has an evangelical population. In other words, those that believe the even, even evangel, the, the good news. The population of Turkey as a whole has an evangelical witness of 0.03%. And I just, and my time over there, I would just, at night, like, literally, at times, like, kept me up. And you know, and it just in God's providence, just thinking about that, and then also this passage, I'm getting ready to study. His brother and sister, dear friend, it's not. Please hear me. I'm not trying to do a drive-by guilting. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you're saved. It's the greatest miracle in the world. Spent most of our time the last couple of weeks in a vast sea of humanity that it, apart from God doing something is on their way to an eternity without him. And so again, do you see why Paul would say here, I do much. To magnify my ministry. What ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so it should cause humility towards the lost in a good, hearty, biblical, reverent fear and thankfulness towards the God who saved us. Do you remember, this is coming to me, the, the story of the, the ten lepers in the book of Luke. And they, they all have leprosy, and so they weren't allowed near anybody, and so they hang out together, and they come near Jesus, and they, they weren't allowed to approach anybody, so they shouted out from a distance, like, you know, Jesus, have mercy on us. And, and he says, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they go, and as they're on their way, all of a sudden they look down, and the leprosy is gone. And just one of them, just, just one out of the ten, Turns, and even though he was told by Jesus to go show himself to the priest, the priest could declare him clean, but he knew who made him clean. And he turns, and he comes back, and and this is a picture of, of, what do I mean when I say reverent fear? It says he falls on his face. Not just on his knees like this, but on his face. At the feet of Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus says, were there not not 10 that were cleansed? Where are the other nine? Brother, sister, don't forget the leprosy of which you have been cleansed. The leprosy of your sin. And that once the severity of God was against you. But turn And give yourself to him. It should not be that only one one in ten turn to give him thanks. But every Christian who has tasted of salvation should turn and fall at his feet. um, I'm going long here and i got more to talk about but I'm going to continue to ramble. And uh, We need to wrap up here. But worship team, you can come up. And... um, And I just uh, just want to close with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones about the grace of God. And again, the grace of God primarily, as we've talked about this morning, yes, the, the message of salvation, but all of redemptive history, all that God has done, and of which you and I are a part if we've trusted him as Savior. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. And I just wanna ask you this morning as we close, what is the measure of your amazement? What is the measure of your amazement? And then I got to thinking, I was like, man, the measure or the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. But how do we measure our amazement? How do we measure whether or not we're truly amazed? I would offer this. The way we measure our amazement is by our consecration to the mission. To the mission that he's given us. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather with your people and to sing and to talk about your word and to encourage one another. Father, I pray that you please give us ears to hear. Please give us eyes to see. Please save us from ourselves and Lord, for those of us that know you as our Savior, I I pray, Lord, that you would save us from things that just don't matter. Save us from being entertained out of our minds. Save us from being comforted to the point of our destruction. Let our hearts be captivated with awe and wonder at what you have done for us. And Father, please help us to respond biblically. Make me a person like this. Make us a church like this. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.